Take out your Bibles with me, if you would. First Peter is our study, continuing, continuing through this amazing letter Peter wrote to the early church. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you don't own a Bible, there should be one under a seat in front of you close by. Please grab that. Open it up to the book of First Peter towards the back. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word that you can read on a daily basis. We've been going through this book, kind of a slower pace to begin. First, first few weeks we've been going, we've covered the first nine verses. And in that, the, the Holy Spirit reveals to us through the writings of Peter some amazing truths. And that's, that's why it's difficult to go much quicker through this. But we talked about the fact that, that in this, that we are chosen by the foreknowledge of God, in eternity past, to be sanctified by his Holy Spirit, to be obedient to Christ by the sprinkling of his blood. We talked last week about the fact that we, that we have been caused to be born again by the Father. And because of this relationship, because of this new life that we have, this eternal life that we have, we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. This inheritance will not fade away. It is imperishable, incorruptible, and it is protected. It is guarded there in heaven for us. But we also talked about the fact that we are guarded. We are protected in this relationship so that we get there to that inheritance one day. Well, many of you, if not all of you, have probably heard the news that on Thursday of this week, Pastor Chuck Smith, the, the founder, the first pastor of Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, the, he went home on Thursday to receive his eternal inheritance. He is, he is with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in heaven. And, and as we reflect on that, there's a lot of mixed emotions. As with anyone who goes on before us, there's, there's, that, there's that emotion of, man, we're going to really miss him. And his ministry touched so many people. I mean, just reflecting and talking with so many people over the last few days, it's just been amazing to think that in one man's lifetime and just the obedience to teaching God's word, what that did. And just an amazing thing. But we also just glory in the fact that he, he's heard those words. Well done. Well done. And so uh, we, we, think of, we think of that, but, um, I, and I, I'm drawn back, to, I had the privilege of meeting him a couple of times, and one in particular, the first time I met him, it was down in Tucson, and there was a pastors and leaders conference down there, and they had, the, ho- the hotel that I was staying in was filled with pastors and leaders from around Arizona, Southern California, New Mexico that had come to this conference, and it was an especially big and busy one because Pastor Chuck was going to teach at it. So people were coming that normally don't come to these things. The hotel is packed, and it's all full of Calvary Chapel people, right? Well, I'm standing in the lobby, and I'm talking with a, with a friend of mine who travels with Pastor Chuck. So, um, but Chuck wasn't with us at the time. We were standing there talking, and here he comes. He walks in to the lobby area. And I'm like, wow, you know, you don't want to ever, you know, idolize people, but it's kind of cool. Here's, here's Pastor Chuck. I've never met him, you know, and he comes walking right over and he's standing with, with us now. And I stop and I say, hi, I'm, I'm Brett from Calvary Chapel up in Surprise. And I shake his hand and it just struck me as to what he said next. He looked right at me and smiled in his way and he shook my hand. He goes, hi, I'm Chuck. (laughs) And I'm thinking, yeah, Everybody in this whole hotel knows who you are. What do you mean? I'm Chuck. Of course. But that's who he was. He's just this humble man who felt that he needed to introduce himself to me because he's just Chuck. Nobody special, just a man who God has placed a calling on his life and he's been obedient to that calling. But wow, you know, and just the humility of him. And another aspect of his humility would be right now, Right now, he wouldn't be real happy with me because we've wasted now three or four minutes talking about him instead of God's word. So let's get to it. Let's not, let's not upset him in that. <laughs> chapter 10, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, this salvation that he's been talking about for the first nine verses, this inheritance that we have, the eternal life that is ours in Christ, as to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them 
that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Peter tells us here that, that this, this amazing gospel message that we have, this good news that we have, this, this, this truth that we have salvation in Christ through grace, by grace, through faith, it's, it's a grace thing. It's not earned. It's, it's, all, it's all grace. It tells us that the, the prophets, they prophesied of this grace that would come. But when they wrote this down, when they recorded it, they were, they were simply receiving from the Holy Spirit the truth of God's word, and they were writing it down. But as they were writing it, they were stirred within them because they wanted to understand it more. They wanted to understand more details about what they were writing about. They understood that God was gracious and merciful and loving. God never changes. They saw that. But they were under the law. And here they're writing about this coming Messiah. This, 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 this one that is to come. And as they wrote of him, that stirred within them this desire to understand more fully the, fully the fullness of grace that we now understand. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 13. Starting in verse 16, he says, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You see, again, working under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they spoke of this coming Messiah, but they spoke of him in two very distinct ways. And Peter tells us this in our, in our text, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They, they recorded this about this, this Messiah who would suffer brutally, but that also would reign victoriously. And they, that puzzled them. They didn't understand how this could work together. And the rabbis that taught through the teachings of the prophets struggle with it, still do. They, they don't understand how one man, how one coming one, could fill both of those roles, the suffering servant and the conquering king, the lion and the lamb. How could one be both? Well, you see, the, the thing is perspective. Where you stand in relation to something changes the whole view. Again, I, I grew up in, in Colorado where we have real mountains. And when I used to do a lot of, of hiking and hunting and, and that type of stuff, and I, I remember on several occasions, especially when I'm young and I'm hunting and the, the morning didn't go real well and I'm trying to explore some new area, and you come to the base of a, of a, of a pretty steep climb, and then it looks like it kind of levels off and then continues climbing. I'm thinking, okay, I want to get to the top of that second peak area so that I could see better down there. So I start my hike up and I'm climbing. From my perspective at the beginning, it looked like the mountain kind of went like this, like they were right next to each other. But as I got to the top of the first one, I realized that next peak's like 10 miles away. You know, it's one of those things, you're looking at it like this, but then when it's like, it's like, but it's perspective. See, they're looking at it that this one, this one time that he comes, how could he fulfill both? But we now standing in the valley between the two understand what they were truly saying is that his first coming would be as the suffering servant, that he would suffer and die, that he would take on the, the punishment of the sin of the world upon him. But in his second coming, he will come again as the conquering king, wearing the victor's crown as we sang of earlier. We have this perspective now that they longed to understand, but we now do. And Jesus said, we are blessed because our eyes see it and our ears hear it. We understand that now. But it's interesting also, in addition to what they're saying, they made these careful searches and inquiries into these things. God let them know in their heart. They realized, it says, that they were serving us, not them. So this mystery that, that was a mystery to them revealed to us. They understood that they were doing it for a purpose for us, to serve us. Now, when I think through that, and I'm trying to, okay, so how does this truth serve us? That he came once as the suffering servant, and he's coming again as the conquering king. He came once as the lamb. He's coming again as the lion. How does that benefit us today? How does that serve us? Well, if we look at their writings, we understand and we see that there are numerous specific prophecies that were given about his first coming. They, they predicted what family he would come from, the family of David. 
They predicted what town he would be born in, Bethlehem, which might not sound like a big deal, except that when the prophet wrote that, there was a very small number of people that lived in this little village called Bethlehem. And when Jesus was born there, there weren't that many more people there then. I mean, this is just some small little dot on the map. And that's where they predicted that the Messiah would be born. Now, again, if I'm writing the story, my king's coming from Jerusalem, the big city, you know, all of this. No, predicted that he would come from there. So many little, th- th- these things that all seem little when we line them all up, but amazing truths and, and, and prophecies that are given. But then they, they start getting really, again, detailed. Daniel's predicted the exact day, the exact day that Jesus would ride triumphantly into Jerusalem on the day that we now look back and call Palm Sunday, before Easter Sunday. The exact day. The, pro- the, the prophecies tell us that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, an exact amount. That's what Judas received to betray him. They, the, the prophecies describe in detail crucifixion. Way before crucifixion was ever used by the Roman Empire as capital punishment. Now all of these prophecies, and there's many more, all of these prophecies benefit us how? Well, some people way smarter than me. I'd love to tell you I figured this out on the back of a napkin on Friday, but I didn't. Really, really smart people said that for one man to fulfill just eight of the prophecies that are outlined for us in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, just eight of them, the odds are one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros behind it. Now again much smarter people than me, came up with an illustration for people that are like me, because that number's way too big for me to fathom. And the illustration's given that if you took a sil- silver dollars and you had one to the 17th power number of silver dollars, that's enough silver dollars to bury the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. So you take one silver dollar now and you mark it specially, And you walk out somewhere out into into Texas and you throw that silver dollar out and stir them all up. Then you take one man and you say, all right, walk anywhere you want out into the state of Texas. And when you feel like it, stop, reach down, dig down, grab a silver dollar. The odds of him pulling that one out are the same as one man fulfilling just eight of the prophecies, much less all of them. Now, fascinating, right? Okay, interesting. What does that have to, so what? Here's what. If he fulfilled all of the old prophecies, he's going to fulfill all of the ones that he's coming again. He is returning again, and we can, we can stand rock solid in that assurance. People, people say, people that don't believe, non-believers, they look at us, they say, oh, you Christians, just nothing but you, just blind faith. That's not blind faith. I'd, I'd say those are pretty good odds. I... That's what we have. We have the assurance to know that because he did what he said he was going to do before, he's going to do what he said he's going to do in the future. He's coming again. And again, this time it's not not as the suffering servant, the lamb. He's coming as the lion, the conquering king, wearing the victor's crown. And again, as we say, we are going to be coming with him. We are his. We're on the winning team. Well, Interesting thing just to touch on as we, before we move into verse 13. At the end of verse 12, it says, things into which angels long to look. This, this salvation by grace is something that the angel it's totally foreign to them. You see, they, God didn't show angels grace. The angels that rebelled against God didn't get a chance to repent. They didn't have an opportunity to receive grace. They were cast out eternally out of heaven. Hell was created for them. They have no chance. And so the angels, they, they long to look into and understand this idea of grace again more fully. That to look into that word is the same one that's used for John when he bends down and looks into the empty tomb. So you get the idea that they're up in heaven and they're looking down at this thing going on and, and they're going, wow, I, I, I want to I understand more about this. And then when they see us again, sinners, openly rebelling against God, yet God's desire is to pour out his grace on us. They're like, wow, them, really? Come on, God, really, them? 
And they, but, but they're intrigued by this and they're drawn into this. Understand, too, the holiness of the angels. They, they, they have never sinned. Their, their desire is to please and honor their God, their king. And I can only imagine, again, as they are looking down now as Jesus, as he has stepped out of heaven and, and lived his life now, and he is facing and about to go to the cross. I can only imagine what must have been going through the, 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 the hearts of these angels. Because that's their king down there. And, and remember, that it tells us that when we talked about it at the beginning with Peter, that in the garden, he reached out and he struck the, the, the servant's ear, cutting off his ear. And Jesus said, put away your sword. And he said, don't you understand that at my one word, 12 legions of angels would be dispatched to take care of me. 12 legions of them. And I got to imagine there was a waiting list to get on that, that 12 legions up in heaven. The angels were like, let me at them. You know, I, 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 they were standing up there at the ready. Just give me the word. But it tells us that they're, they're, they're blown away by this. Because after he, he died and he rose again, and now we see the outpouring of grace upon us, that when we do turn, when we do repent of our sin, it tells us that the angels rejoice in heaven over one that repents and turns and receives salvation. So they're up there going, and they're looking down on me, and they're going, man, no way, not him, really? Did, you, you did see all of this stuff. You, you, I, well, of course you do. You're God. You, you saw, but him? And then when, when, we, when we receive that, they're like, yes! And there's this party that breaks out. It's just awesome. Things which angels long to look. Well, moving on, verse 13. It says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter now all of a sudden switches gears talking about this inheritance this salvation that we have he switches gears now and starts focusing on our response and it's important that we understand that it's a response to a done deal something that's already happened that's why he uses the word therefore therefore it's key that we understand this it's it's not in order to receive this inheritance it's because we have it it's not in order to be born again it's because we are it's not in order to be chosen, it's because we have been that we are to respond this way. Now, it doesn't minimize the importance of our obedience to what Peter says because we already have received it. If anything, in my opinion, as we look through this, that should raise the bar a little bit. Not minimize the importance, but even make it greater importance that we follow what is laid out for us here because we have already received this. These are imperatives, they're not options. They're not suggestions. Peter is saying, therefore, because you have this, because you are born-again believers and followers of Jesus, this is how you should walk. This should define you. And he summarizes it for us in verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Holiness. That summarizes how we are to be. Holiness. And that word holy is, it, it, if I were to ask, tell me what holy means, we'd probably get a myriad of different answers. Holiness simply means set apart. Set apart, sanctified, placed apart from, from others for a unique purpose. We are now set apart because of this relationship for Christ. That's what holiness means, to be set apart, to be separated. Obviously, God defining holiness, being completely separate, un unattainable, separation. But we are to be separated, set apart. So he summarizes in verse 15, but he gives us the standard there also. Like the holy one who called you. Our holiness is not measured based upon one another. It's, it's not that we can stand here and say, well, I'm holier than that guy. I'm, I'm holier than that group of people. So I'm good. No, our, our standard is the one who called you. Our standard is the holiness of Christ. 
the set-apartness for him, the unique mission that he came and fully fulfilled. When he prayed to the Father, he said, I've, I've done everything that you've sent me to do, fully fulfilling the mission that you've called me. I was set apart for this. I stayed on task. I did that. That is our model. We are to be set apart and completely for him. Now notice also the scope of it as it's laid out for us. To be holy yourselves in all your behavior. All your behavior. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I can guarantee you that there's some in this room right now that said, as soon, uh, thinking, as soon as I said that, well, nobody's perfect. Because that's quite often our answer most of the time when we hear this, when we talk about holiness, when we talk about the way that we are to live. The answer real quickly often is, well, nobody's perfect. I, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't live that way all the time. I can't be holy all the time. I mean, nobody's perfect. Do you realize that if that is our mindset, if that is our heart, we have zero chance of getting it done. We are setting ourselves up right out of the chute for failure. Now, we're gonna, I'm going to come back to this in a minute because it's true. It's true. None of us have done it. But if, understand this, and this is the, like the illustration that I use because I have this conversation a lot. When I, when I talk to people, when, when there's sin in our lives and we need to confront sin in our lives, that's, that's our flesh response. Well, nobody's perfect. If I, I use the baseball analogy a lot. There has never been, not one time, ever, ever, in the history of baseball, for a professional baseball player to get a hit every time he went up to bat. Now, that being the case... How successful is a team going to be if the manager, you know, he goes up to the player and he goes, now understand this, Brett, the best of us only get a hit three out of ten times. Now, that means that seven out of ten times you're going to either strike out, make it out, you know, you're not going to get the job done. Go get him, Tiger. How, how successful is that going to, you're going to go up with the mindset that I'm going to fail more than I'm going to succeed. You're setting yourself up for failure immediately. But every professional athlete, every professional baseball player that, that, that makes this, he goes up, every time he steps in, his desire is to get a hit. That's what he's going up there to do. And even if he's gotten 12 hits in a row, odds are stacked against him. He's not going to make, he doesn't go to, well, I, I, why even bother now? No, it's his, it's his, that's what he is going up there to do. All of us in this room who are married, we, when, we made a, when we made a commitment at our, at our marriage ceremony, it's, it's called holy matrimony for a reason, because what we do at that time, when I stood next to my wife and I said, I do, I made a, I made a commitment at that moment that I am setting myself apart for the rest of my life for her and her alone. Completely separating myself from anyone else and for her and her alone. Now, I made that commitment at one moment, but every moment for the rest of my life, I live for that commitment. That's what holy matrimony, that's, that, that's, what, I, that's what I have promised to do. Now, there was a song many years ago by Alan Jackson. It's called, I'll Try. And the lyrics went something like this. It says, I'll try to love only you. I'll try my best to be true. Any of you ladies signing up for that? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 mean I, I, I find it hard to believe. How could you even write that, much less sing it and think that it's good? But it was, it was a hit. I'll try. You know, we'll, we'll get up there and you're standing before the, the, all of the witnesses and the pastor and he's in a, do you promise to forsake all others and love only your wife as long as you both shall live? Well, Reverend, I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> you know, like I said, I can't imagine many brides that would stand up there and go for that. We are called the bride of Christ. In this relationship that we have been called into, we are called to holy matrimony with our Lord and Savior. We are to be set apart for him and him alone. That, that, is, that is 
the calling that we have on us, holiness, to be holy as he is holy. Now, with that understanding, it's not an excuse, again, for us to be able to go out, to go out and sin because no one has done that. But the truth of the matter is we are fallen, and we do fall short of that. And praise God, he's a merciful God. His mercies are new every morning. The word tells us that where, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. That means you can never overdraw your grace account. And, and that's an amazing truth, and it's something that we need to embrace. But as Paul tells us in Romans 6, that doesn't give us license to go out in sin as much as we want to because, hey, I can't ever overdraw this thing. Understand a holy God can never, cannot, cannot just wink at sin and say, ah, oh, it's all right. He can't. He's holy, and we are called to be holy. Well, he gives us, in addition to our, our standard and the, and the scope of it, he does give us some specifics. We'll cover those quickly. Beginning in verse 13, he tells us to prepare our minds for action. Prepare your minds. Therefore, because of this, understand there's going to be a battle ahead. There's going to be a fight that we need to rage, and it starts right here. It starts in our minds. Roll up your sleeves, he's saying, and get ready to fight this battle for your minds. The enemy, the enemy knows this. We are constantly bombarded with, with stimuli around us to get our minds focused on anything but the truth of God's word. Anything but our relationship with Christ. It's everywhere around us. Try this, go here, do this, doubt that, question this. And it's a battle for our mind. The world around us is not for us. And Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, the enemy wins this battle for our minds if he can get us to focus on anything but Jesus to fix our attention on anything but him. And that can even include some things that we might think on the surface are, are good things. A, a, a commitment to, do, to walk this way and to act this way and to do these certain things, and I'm going to lay out these 12 things that I'm going to do every day, and da-da-da-da-da, and then we can fall into a very legalistic pattern. He's good with that, because he knows how frustrating that will be. He's good with us if we say, all right, in order for me to do this, i got to sell everything that I have and move up into a little cabin in the mountains and isolate myself from the rest of the world. He's great with that because though that might help us in, in the short term, it doesn't do any good for the gospel message that we need to get out to the rest of the world. So he's good with that. He's good any time that we can, when we lean on our own efforts to do this. We need to understand that in our power, there's, there's nothing that we can do to live this way. It's illustrated very well. I've, seen, I've heard the illustration used before, and I, I like the way it fits into this. The Greek poet Homer wrote of this, this island out in the middle of the ocean where there was these beautiful women that were there that sang this beautiful song that was irresistible. And as the ships would sail by, they would begin their song, and the, angels, or the, and the, um, the sailors couldn't resist and so they would turn the ship to go see the, the, the beauty that was there and to hear it more fully. And every time they would crash on the rocks and all of the sailors would be killed. And so this legend starts spreading through. And so they would do whatever they could to avoid the island and to isolate themselves from it. Well, there was a man, the story goes on, talks of his name is Ulysses. And he wanted to hear the sirens sing their song and live through it. So he came up with this idea, this plan, that, that all of the sailors on the ship would pack their ears with wax when they got close by, and they would tie him to the mast of the ship so that he could hear it, but he could do nothing about it. He couldn't, he, he, they couldn't hear him. They, he couldn't get himself free. So they did that, and as they approached and they started singing their song, they packed their ears with, ears with the wax, they tied him up, and he was screaming at the top of his lungs, let's go, we have to go over there, it's so beautiful, we have to change. And he's trying to fight through all this bloody and bruised, trying to get out of his binds that he wrapped himself in. He got through it, but he was miserable and beaten at the end. 
Well, the story goes on and tells of a third man, Odysseus, who who went on this voyage, but he understood that there was also a man on the ship, his name was Pan, who was the most beautiful flute player in the whole world. And as they got close by the island and they began to sing their song and the, the sailors started to turn the ship, he said, Pan, play, play, play. And he got out his flute and he started playing and the music was so beautiful that all of a sudden the siren's song was, was nothing that they wanted to hear anymore. So they focused on, on the beautiful music that Pan was playing and the ship sailed safely by. Well, in the story, again, it just it, it illustrates. We, can, we, have our, we have our options. We can surrender to it and crash into the rocks. We can try to isolate ourselves and sail out as far away from it as we can. We can try to battle this in our own efforts, but just in the end be a bloody, beaten mess. Or we can focus on the sweeter music of our Lord and Savior. We can focus on him. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying in chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, if we stop right there, it's all based on us. It's all based on our efforts. And again, we could beat ourselves up and, and drive ourselves insane with this, or we can, as it continues, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, considering him, and in so doing, there is our victory. That is how we live a holy life. Focusing on him, relying on him, trusting in him. Now it says keep sober as we continue through in 1 Peter. Keep sober, that means to be alert. Don't get caught sleeping. Stay attentive. Don't let the world lull you to sleep. Fix your hope. Fix your hope. That, that assurance, that rock-solid assurance that we have of, that, of our coming uh, uh, inheritance, the salvation that is ours. Fix our hope there. Hope and holiness go together. John said the same thing, John, 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Tells us not to be conformed to our former lusts. Being conformed means to be shaped by, to be molded by. No longer are we to be driven by and molded by these past things that we've struggled with, the sin in our lives. But as, as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We are to put off our old self and put on our new self, a changing of garments, if you would. And in this new self that we have put on, Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit, not filled with the junk of the world, not, filled with, not, not to be drunk, as he said, as the world does, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In this new self, we also have an amazing truth that Paul tells us in Colossians. This mystery, Christ in us, the hope of glory. He is in us. Our new self contains our very Lord and Savior. Now he continues in verse 17, If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with, imperish with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of the lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, when we read through this and we see things that you address as father, 
You know, we like that idea of, of a heavenly father. I mean, that, that appeals to us. A, a father figure in heaven who loves us, Abba, Father, that we can call to it. And, and we're good with that. And most of us say, yeah, I'm, I'll sign up for that. But, but understanding, verse 14 tells us that as a heavenly father we have, we are to be obedient children. And then all of a sudden that changes a little bit. You mean I, I, ha- I have to be obedient? <laughs> yes. As, as the, we are to be obedient children to this heavenly Father that we have. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. But he didn't stop there. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. You are holy. And, and we can get caught up in this, this idea that we have this Abba Father full of love and grace and mercy and stop there. Yes, we have this Abba Father who pours out his love and his grace and his mercy upon us. Yes, but understand a very important truth. The Bible is clear that from eternity past and on through eternity future, there are angels that surround the the throne of God and they are not saying love, 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 mercy, 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 grace, grace, grace. They are saying holy, holy holy. We serve a holy God. In his holiness, in his separateness, includes perfect love, perfect grace, perfect mercy that he pours out upon us. But he is holy. And because of that, it commands our respect, our reverence, our fear, As Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. This isn't some casual thing that we just kind of walk through. We serve a holy God. Paul said the same thing, Philippians 2.12, that we are to live out our salvation with fear and trembling. Again, not that we're standing in the corner quivering and, you know, our lower lip shaking, but in awesome reverence. We see examples in, in, in the, in, throughout Scripture when, when they actually got a glimpse of God. They fell face down on the ground because of his holiness. Well, we, we get a, an understanding of why God demands this and commands this from us in Leviticus when it talks of the first time when God tells the children of Israel to be holy because he is holy. Leviticus chapter 11 Verse 44 says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. That means separate yourself. You are to be sanctified. You are to be holy. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make for yourselves, you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now again, we get a beautiful picture again here of the understanding of who God is. He doesn't say, be holy, and then I'll come and get you from Egypt. He says, because I have already done this for you, you were in slavery in Egypt. You could do nothing to help yourself. You were hopeless, and I came and I rescued you from that. I brought you out here to be my people. I am your God. You are my people. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. And the same is true with us. He has bought us out of slavery to sin. There was nothing that we could do to get out of that problem ourselves. We were hopeless in that situation. As a matter of fact, we were so hopeless, we didn't even realize we had a problem. But by by his grace and love, through his Holy Spirit, he revealed sin to us that we are sinners. And he showed us the way through faith in Christ. And Jesus came and died, suffered and died in our place, paying the penalty for our sin. We were bought out of that slavery situation. And it tells us that we were purchased by the precious blood of Christ. Again, I can't can't say it enough and we can't hear it enough. God himself, Jesus, stepped out of heaven He came and he lived here on this earth, lived fully God, fully man, took on humanity, lived a sinless life, the only one to ever not deserve death, but he took our death upon himself. 
a brutal, cruel death in which he shed his blood for us. God poured out his wrath on him so that he didn't, wouldn't pour it out on us. He took it all for us. Do you realize and recognize the price that was paid for you? It, it, it blows me away when I even try to stop and, and wrap my mind around it. Do you recognize the price that was paid for you? That should factor into every aspect of our life. The price that was paid for us should factor into everything that we say, everything that we do, everything that we think. We are to be holy because he is holy. He bought us out of this relationship. And again, he didn't say, be holy, and then I'll come take care of it. He says, be holy because I already have. Verse 20 says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This was, again, we've talked about this over the past couple of weeks. This was done. This was decided in eternity past. This plan that he would come and suffer and die in our place. And that he would rise again victoriously so that our faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Peter again brings up this concept, this idea of being born again. And as we've talked, Jesus said you must be born again in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's, it's not this or that. There is only one way. You must be born again. And, and Peter tells us here that that. All things, that, all living things that naturally reproduce themselves are done by seed. All, all do. Plants, animals, us. Reproduction happens by a seed, but it's a perishable seed. Sin brought death into the world, death for all things. The world is dying. Plants are dying. People are dying. Animals are dying. The perishable seed that causes physical life to happen brings about death. But he says there is an imperishable seed that comes to us through hearing the word of God and receiving the truth thereof. He says, in obedience to the truth, you've purified your souls. Obedience to the truth, as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, you must be born again. And then he went on to explain that the, the Father loved the world so much that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Obedience to that truth, placing our faith and trust in him and him alone, his completed work on the cross, that is the only way to purify ourselves. But when we do that, we are born again spiritually. With the imperishable seed. And what does it mean to have an imperishable seed? That means it won't die. You see, if you have only been born once, physically, but not spiritually, you will die twice. You will die physically. Your body will, will fade away, will die. But you will also die spiritually, and that does not mean that your soul ceases to exist. What it means is you will spend eternity in hell, separated from the love of God, facing only his wrath for eternity. That is spiritual death. It's an eternal death. But if you have been born twice, physically and spiritually, born again, you will only die once. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. What Jesus is saying is that that if you are born again spiritually, you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus and Him and Him alone, when you take your last breath here, you immediately take your first one in eternity. This this body doesn't go anywhere. This stays here and, and rots and turns into dust. But you don't. You just change addresses. I heard on Friday, Pastor Chuck's son-in-law, Brian Broderson, had quoted something that Chuck had said several years ago. He said, if you ever, if you wake up one day and you hear that I died, don't you believe it? He didn't die. His, his body here no longer functions. It's no longer drawing in and out air. He didn't die, though. He's in the presence of our Lord. He's, he's living eternally. He's, he's receiving his inheritance. And that's the truth that, that, that Peter is saying here. This, this imperishable seed, to be born again, we too can have that assurance that we will never die. I, I, I kind of hurried through here to get to the end of this for a reason, and we're gonna, there's a couple other things that I want to talk about. We'll get to that next week. We'll back up a little bit and keep going. But I, I just thought that this, this so, so much embodied Pastor Chuck's whole view on things. This last verse, For all flesh is like grass, and all the glory of the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That's, that was his whole life's mission, was the word of the Lord and getting it out, simply teaching it, and what does it mean, and how do we apply it? And, and all of the other stuff doesn't matter. Just the eternal things. Just, just, the, just the word of God that ca- contains the secret and the truth for eternal life. And what, a, what an amazing thing to know that as born-again believers, we have that same thing in us, that same imperishable seed. Father, we thank you for the amazing truth of your word. Lord, how we can, how we can read through this and you give us insight and understanding that, that the prophets didn't have. How blessed we are to understand this. Blessed we are to know that because you perfectly fulfilled every prophecy about your first coming, we know that every prophecy concerning your second coming will come true as well. Lord, we thank you for calling us. We thank you for for filling us with your spirit, giving us everything that we need for a life of godliness, a life that would follow you. We thank you for causing us to be born again. If there is anyone here this morning who has never taken that step, you you understand and you realize right now that that you haven't been born again. Please understand that it's not too late. But if you don't respond, you could come to a point where it is. And right now, it's simply a matter of responding to the Holy Spirit in your heart right now that is, that is, that is saying, that's you, that's you. And if you feel that right now, and if you feel that, that prompting that, that, you are, that you need to make this right, that you need to give your life right now to Jesus and trust in him so that you can have eternal life, if that is you would, you, would you raise your hand? Would you just slip your hand in the air? I'd like to pray with you right now. Anyone at all that says, I want that. I want eternal life. I want to know. Praise God. Anyone else? I see you over here. Anybody else? No, praise God. Praise the Lord. Well, if that is you, if that is you, I see see you, praise God. Right now, it's simply a matter of going before the Lord right now in your heart and you say, Father, 
I understand that I am a sinner and that I have sinned against you and I confess my sin. I agree with you that I have fallen short of what you have called me to do, what you expect of me. And Lord, I know that I cannot fix this myself. I know that, that I, am, I am lost without you. So I confess my sin and I repent of my sin. I, in, in you, in the power that you give me right now, I turn from my sin and I turn to you, Jesus, and I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. I accept your free gift and I ask you to become Lord and Savior of my life, to I, I, I surrender my life to you. I'm tired of trying to control it myself. You take over from now on. I don't understand everything. I don't understand all of this, but I trust you. I believe that you died for me. Thank you for hearing my prayer and saving me. And maybe you're here this morning and you are born again. You have surrendered your life and trusted in Jesus, but you know you know that the Holy Spirit right now is telling you and talking to you that you have walked away from God, that you're not living for Him. You know that He's called you to holiness and a life. And though, though it's not, it's, it's, we all fall short and we all stumble in, in ways, but you know that you have been walking away from Him and you want to get that right this morning. Would you raise your hand? If that is you, again, right now, in your heart, you just, you just go before the Lord and you confess to him, Lord, I love you, and I know that you died for me, and I thank you for the conviction that you're giving me right now that I have not been living the way that, you know, that I know you want me to, that I have walked away from you, but Lord, I'm walking, I come back to you now, and as, as the story of the prodigal son tells us, as 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 I'm taking this step, Lord, I know you're running to embrace me. I stand on the truth of the word that says, if I confess my sin, you're faithful to forgive me. So, Lord, forgive me and wash me clean. Fill me with your Holy Spirit again, Lord, to, to walk in this newness of life now again. That I, can, that I can obey you. That I can live this holy life by your power in me. Oh, Lord, we thank you for how amazing you are. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the work that you've just done here amongst us. We praise you and give you all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, would you